One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. My guest today is a self-confessed decentralisation geek. Jack DeRose is the co-founder of two Ethereum-based startups, Colony and Ownage. Colony is a social collaboration platform that makes it easy for people all over the world to build companies together online. And Ownage is a decentralised platform for digital item exchange, providing gamers with a new way to monetize their work. To nerd out with us about decentralization, cryptocurrency, and all things blockchain, Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'll start off just with a simple one. How are you? How's things? <laughs> Very well indeed, thank you. No complaints today. Uh, you? I, yeah, I'm good. I'm, good well, stuff. I've sleep deprived, but you've got to turn it on for podcast day. So. <laughs> well, I've got kids, so you, you don't oh, yeah. get any sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How many have you got now? Two. Right, yes. yeah. So four, four and eleven months. Holding down cryptocurrency businesses or, or uh, Ethereum-based startups and kids, I, I imagine you win. It's a challenge. <laughs> um, just for people who are listening, I want them to know that if you want to go back to episode five and listen to how much I've not really developed, but uh, the sound quality certainly has, then you can go back and listen to our first episode with Jack, where we really cover the basics with regards to... Uh, blockchain technology and what this whole uh, uh, cryptocurrency space is all about. I basically have a bunch of new questions and I haven't developed much further, but uh, if you want to kind of answer all the simple questions, I'd recommend people kind of go back there. Um, So I wanted to start today with the money bit, just because that seems to be the thing that's getting everyone, uh, peaks everyone's interest. And I listened back to our initial interview, and you were talking about Ripple and Ethereum kind of over over a year ago, year and a half, two years ago, before it blew up. Hmm. And um, just wanted to know, like, what's your experience been going through that transition for a start-off? Has, have things changed for you as a result of that? It's really, it's an interesting one, because when you are sort of looking at this stuff anyway every day... Um, and still sort of really going through the same kind of channels to to learn the news, it doesn't seem like that much has changed apart from seeing the price of all of these things go absolutely, completely crackers. Um, So I I hear from, you know, er, more or less every friend that I've ever spoken to at any point about this has reached out to me. Um, to ask how that they can how they can invest in, in <laughs> and what they should invest in specifically, um, which I have no good answers to, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so from that perspective, it's been really interesting. I think the thing that worries me a little bit in looking at all of this um, is that sort of being quite um, quite close to everything that's going on, I can see that. You know, the anticipation 
or, or the, the price is completely disconnected and the amount of hype is completely disconnected from the reality of the technology. And the technology is amazing and transformative and it is going to have a fundamental impact on the way many things in the world work. But we're quite a long way from that now. And so, yeah, the financial hype behind it is is problematic and or, or, or worrying, I should say, rather than problematic. Um, but that's probably just because I realise that all of us who are working on these technologies have got a lot to live up to. Yeah, and I think there's there's loads of comparisons. People have referring to the kind of dot com boom where people were speculating on companies and saying that they were gonna they were gonna become massive and none of them had real businesses that could sustain themselves. But I think what's interesting about the space is that it's it seems accessible for people. So it's almost like making speculative startup investments where you only need to stick 30 quid in, but the upside could be massive. And but you, So you can see why it's very attractive for people. Absolutely. It's very alluring, for uh, sure. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned about getting advice because I was going to... The first thing I was going to do was share my noob strategy and mm-hmm. then see what you had to say about it. Okay, go for it. Um, I mean, I would definitely say I'm in no way an expert trader. <laughs> I'm not sure such a thing exists, actually, but yeah. everybody certainly looks very clever who was uh, involved earlier on there. <laughs> oh, yeah, I bet, yeah. I think the way I've looked at it and approached it and is you, you can't put anything in there you're not prepared to lose. Absolutely. It's, it's a, a massive uh, kind of just... It's better than spinning the roulette wheel because it's a bit more fun and entertaining, but don't see it as as, um, money that you're going to get back in any Mm -hmm. capacity. That said, um, you know, I look into my personal finance stuff and I have a couple of uh, index trackers I use for long term investment. Mm -hmm. And I've, you know, I looked into index trackers with regards to um, the altcoins Mm -hmm. because. The problem with the altcoin space is that you have to be on all these various platforms and people are talking about certain hard drives you have to have in order to store this stuff. And it seems like a lot of legwork up front and hence why the bar to entry is pretty high and a lot of people aren't getting in and playing in the in the space. Um, but, I mean, w- effectively, my strategy is super, super simple, which is to spread bet on a bunch of... Uh, uh, kind of altcoins that people are speculating of, uh, are based on some kind of decent grounding and then hope that one of them uh, at least kind of 10x is in return and then to withdraw my initial investment and play with what cash is left on the table. Right. Um, but I mean, all of this is so speculative and I've realised that people will be doing exactly the same thing that I'm doing, which is basically Googling what's the best thing to invest in or whatever. So you're looking at an SEO game and how the media can interpret the market and not interpret, can affect the market. Mm -hmm. And so in essence, unless you're a real insider and know the people and and know something about it, it feels like it's all guesswork. Um, I think there's an element of guesswork to it as there is with probably, as I say, I'm, I'm by no means an expert investor. I'm certainly somebody who likes to participate in token sales from time to time um yeah that that for for me generally comes from that i'll I'll find something where uh, where i take sort of much more like a sort of business angel kind of view to it i suppose is that i see something i think it's cool um there seems to be a really valid need for the technology um within it because in many cases there aren't and it's just being viewed as as uh, an easier way to get 
capital than um, than than going down the traditional venture route. Um, so the, the, there's a real need for the technology there. There's a real need for the token there, critically, because in many cases, if not most cases, there is no real need for a token in many of the ICOs that are going on. So I was, um, was going to oh. ask you about that because mm. it, it's being coined as cryptocurrency, but from my research, I've discovered that a lot of these things don't require a coin a per se. It's like right. it's built on it's built on the technology framework, and they've done this in order to build momentum around what they're building or whatever and it just it it, that was one of my questions was why do companies feel the need to always have a coin you know or these people that are uh, doing initial coin offerings yeah when there's no currency exchange element to their product or it's it's you know insignificant why why are they doing that I think the short answer is because it's it's easier than raising VC money. Right. I mean, anybody who's you know raised any amount from from venture capitalists are uh, will will know that it's it's not easy. They're smart. They've got a lot of sensible questions to ask. They've done it many more times than you have as the entrepreneur. And um, you know, the alternative seemingly is that you can create a smart contract that will issue some tokens. To some people, you can create some spurious use for it within your platform, um, and say, and this is simplest. That's well, we sell this service or we facilitate this service, but the catch is that you have to pay for it in this token. And if, for me, that's not. It can be a reasonable way to do it, um, but by and large, I don't think that's true because usually these are for a centralized company or often I should not usually often they're for a centralized company um, and yeah they, they really don't need it because it's just a it's just a, a method of payment and you, you could just as easily use many other coins for that and um, yeah that, that in my view is what they should be doing and so that is generally not the kind of thing that that I would go for as a person purchasing tokens yeah um, However, that's not to say that a lot of those things don't end up appreciating massively, yeah, uh, because that... the, the yeah the 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 performance of of these things is is often strictly disconnected from the fundamental reality of the technology or of the company. Yeah, like I've been watching a bunch of videos with regards to what what you should what you should and shouldn't invest in, and oh. I'm blown away by the level of, uh, you know, the. The, the work that's being put in behind the scenes is like, check out their website and look at this bit of information they've released. It really seems like they know what they're, they're going for. Mm. And it, it, no basis for value at all, in my opinion. But um, like you say, they as soon as they hit the market, I think everyone's trying to predict what's going to end up on Coinbase because as soon as that happens, it reaches a, a, the second tier of mass market uh, within the space and, and things explode. Right, so... I don't have more things been listed on Coinbase recently. I think there was some rumor of that happening. Yeah, I mean there are there is rumor of I think Ripple was heavily rumored to potentially right. go on there, uh, and then that's obviously seen seen had a massive beating recently. Yeah, but I mean as of, as of all the coins based on the South Korean news, as far as I can tell. Well, I don't know if it's based on South Korean news, which seems to largely be. Rumor. I don't know that there is any real South Korean news. Uh, from it was something about you—you you can't be anonymous or something. It was a, an, something an, an, an along anonymity those lines. Rule. But I, 
you know, often in January the markets dip um, quite quite strongly. And um, why is yeah, that? The, I think it's the short answer is I don't really know. I, I I don't know anybody who has got a really compelling reason for why markets do what they do. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's. Uh, my guess is it's just positive feedback loops. There are people who have the ability to manipulate the market or, or to make big movements. It's in their interest to see that happen because traders don't make money when the markets are, are sort of steady. Um, and, yeah, it, it becomes a, fos- a positive feedback loop because it causes people to panic. And this usually happens when you've had a massive influx of new people because... They are not used to seeing this happen. So, you know, you buy your Ether at $1,400 or whatever it got to. And then before you know it, it's down to $800 or 750 or whatever it went down to. And people are absolutely panicking <laughs> because they think, what have I done? Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> and, you know, you see people who, who say, well, I've just racked up $450,000 of, of debt in order to buy these things. Um and, that's you know, often that's just are, lunacy, oh, is it it's, not? It's lunacy, absolutely. Uh, talking about the volatility of the market, because, you know, when this thing first came around, the, the way it was sold to the, to the general public was an alternative to money. Mm. And obviously you can't attach a value to anything as, as volatile as, say, Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything right now. What's the answer for stability long term? And do you think it will actually become a means of exchange or is that just... You know this this the elevator pitch that gets people interested in the space. So the idea behind Bitcoin was that it would be money. The idea around Ethereum wasn't that it would be money. It was that it's a means of paying for um, computation on a decentralized sort of world computer that um, would allow you to do these sort of financially focused or value focused um, applications. Um, so. To some extent, it's acceptable that that um, ether price moves around because you have this other mechanism called gas, which attempts, although imperfectly, to give you um, um, a sort of more floating value or or, or, or ability to um, tailor the cost of of running those programs independent of what the ether price is. It doesn't work that well, actually, but that's the intention. Um, <laughs> For Bitcoin, yeah, I mean, the the initial thinking, I suppose, or the initial talk at least was around it being money. I think people nowadays view it more as um, a store of value. It's, it's you know, something that you could use, which may in, in, in some minds be be better than gold um, or because it's, um, you know, more liquid. You can move around a lot more easily. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can have, of course, an, like an that's, arbitrary amount of money in your head, practically. That's fascinating. That basically, the the the, the mobility of it is mm. what makes it feasibly better than gold. In yeah, the, I mean, in, the, in the nice eye, thing in the about gold is it doesn't suddenly half in value. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. But I mean, so in in what you're effectively saying is that Bitcoin has no use case at all, other than this, other than a store of value, which. Which it's so volatile that it's no real store of value, is it? In terms of you can't, it's it's not. I mean, I mean, if you'd bought a you know a dollar, it would be considered a store of value, I'm sure. Even if it's moved from eighteen thousand dollars a few weeks ago to what eleven thousand or something today, yeah, 
still not bad. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> but, true. Uh, but but certainly not um, a stable store of value. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, again, when this first came out, this, these are these are some really kind of novice questions. But I always thought it was about it had no there was no control in terms of government and everything. Mm-hmm. And it, I've watched a couple of documentaries on it, and it seems that the the two brothers that were supposedly the guys that came up with Facebook and all that, that they held a, a large amount of it yep. and were kind of pushing for it to... The Winklevi. The Winklevi twins, yeah. yeah. Who, who now run um, a, an excellent exchange, actually, called Gemini. Right. Yeah. But, so they... But they wanted it to be legitimised in the eyes of the government, didn't they, in order for it to be regulated. Right. And so I'm guessing that process has taken place and, like... Does what's the effect of that? Does that mean that it's kind of out of the Maverick's hands and that it's that it's in the greasy hands of government in some respect? Not as far as I know. Right. I, 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 there's there's no um, there's no meaningful regulation of, of of Bitcoin or no regulation of it whatsoever. In fact, um, I think that there's probably some regulation that would be uh, welcomed by most, which would particularly be around. Um, exchanges who also already do have some um, requirements, but they could probably be more stringent because you know they're they're looking after a huge amount of money nowadays. And but that situation has emerged rather more rapidly than than governments tend to respond to these situations. So in, you you you're right in the respect that it seems like the wild west. It, p- people are making tens of thousands of pounds, hundreds of thousands of pounds, whatever, just like average average joe mm-hmm. and not paying kind of any and they're not making kind of investment paying tax on the the money that they've accrued or anything like that it seems like a lot of people are gonna gonna reap reap uh the repercussions of this in years to come once there's some kind of follow-up and people are making 100 grand and not paying anything or, or and that kind of thing do you think that's true or not um i mean i think people People still have to pay their tax. I mean, yeah. they, they can't really not pay their tax because, uh, I mean, I suppose technically they could if they never took it out of crypto. It would be quite difficult to to follow. But if anybody ever wants to back out into fiat, you know, the the they're going to have to explain where that ten thousand pound that hit their bank account came from. Yeah, and then you you know you need to be able to to demonstrate that and pay your capital gains tax. Yeah. Uh, what I was trying to touch on a minute ago, but I failed to a little bit, was how have the banks responded to this? So obviously, central banks, which was the the enemy of of the elevator pitch in the start, that you know, there's all these fees they can liquidate the the value of the of of currency, all of these kind of things that come in come into play. Mm. Um, how have they responded, and and what, are they just jumping on the bandwagon themselves and trying to trying to reap the rewards of, of the arbitrage that can be created with that much power? Like, what's the deal there? I think that there's a couple of different angles to it because, you know, we, there's the currencies and then there's the technology as well. And and I think every bank uh, basically is dabbling in blockchain tech one way or the other at the moment or have some involvement with one of the... Uh, one of the sort of large enterprise efforts that are ongoing, like the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance or R three or or the stuff that IBM are doing. Um, so there's that side of it, and they're very very keen on that. 
they seem to be rather less keen on companies on providing banking services for companies that are involved in one way or another with cryptocurrencies or blockchain technology. Um, and you know the 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 common refrain that you hear um, is just that oh they feel threatened, so they don't want to provide support for for companies that are involved in this. I suspect it's it's not quite that churlish. Um, I suspect it comes more down to concerns around um, um, AML considerations and AML. Uh, uh, anti money laundering, right? Um, and 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 stuff like that. Um, because you know it's it's perceived as being this very complex wild west, as you say, um, and it's too great a risk for them. But I think that they're they're sort of gradually coming round, realizing that this is not something which is going to go away. It's going to be a, an increasingly important um, economic activity that lots of people are participating in, and will become increasingly legitimized. So yeah, th- it, they'll have no choice really. It feels like we're in the second phase of it. Mm, definitely, in yeah. terms of lots of people are, are are interested in it and want to know more. I bet it does your head in being scenes as you kind of work in the space that there'll be people like me that aren't kind of giving you the reward of a podcast necessarily asking you the exact <laughs> same questions every day. Um, I, I, I would kick myself I didn't ask of all of the um, altcoins and ICOs and all the things which are going on, like what, which ones do you hold? And I'm not saying this is investment <laughs> advice, but um, just so that I can get rich, what, 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 <laughs> what, are, you, what are you holding? Um, what do I... Uh, and well, what, 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 let me let me phrase it differently because uh, what let don't me think. You hold? What, I mean, there's vastly more that I don't hold than I do. I yeah. mean, ether, I think, is still the most interesting. Um, and in any of this, I do not purport to know what will happen, but with price, I think that Ethereum is a super super interesting platform. Um, I don't know if ultimately it'll be the technology which is which sort of wins out, but it is the technology which has the greatest developer mindshare. That the most people are working on that in one way or the other, whether it be on the core protocols, on applications building on top of it, and on various other um, sort of ancillary um, protocols and, and services which kind of contribute to. The, um, the 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 functional the functionality and the utility of that of that platform. Let me ask you this before you jump into the the altcoins. Okay. Uh, Bitcoin is split into Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, and you've also got Ethereum Bitcoin Gold too, I think. Right, and you've also got Ethereum Classic. Mm-hmm. What the hell does that mean? And where, if you're going to hold any money in Ethereum, which one do you hold it in? Of the... Well, in my view, absolutely, under no circumstances, Ethereum Classic. Right, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm jesting, but it's... Um, so so if, I think the two things are, are quite different, So, um, or, or a little bit different, at least. They the all came about as a result of hard, hard forks of the, um, of the main blockchain, um, and a hard fork is basically where uh, uh, the majority of, of miners... Um, the people doing the proof of work that secures the the network decide that um, they want to institute a change to the to the code that will make it be somehow slightly different. Um, 
So in the case of Ethereum, that happened when there was this uh, project called the DAO, uh, which stands for the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. I can't remember whether we covered this in the last one. We probably did. I, re- I recall you saying that word, so yeah. I assume we did. Yeah. Um, uh, and so this was a very contentious event because I think there was something like 14.5% of all of the Ether in existence uh, locked up in the DAO, which... Um, well, probably equates to something like $14 billion in today's money, I guess. I'm not exactly sure what Ethereum's market cap is at the moment, but it's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the time, I think it was around $150 million, something in that area, 150 to $200 million, depending on the day. Um, and, yeah, some, somebody managed to hack this supposedly unhackable smart contract. Uh, or exploit it at least, it wasn't really a hack. Um, and all this money started to get siphoned off. So there was uproar within the community, and ultimately the decision that was made by the majority of people was that they would prefer to live in a world where the thief didn't get to keep his, his ether. And some minority of the community did not agree with that, really vehemently didn't agree with it. Um, they felt that this was a, a fundamental bastardization of the principles that that um, Ethereum was founded upon. And consequently, when the hard fork happened, um, a subset of people decided that they did not wish to support Ethereum. They wanted to maintain on the original chain, which then became Ethereum Classic. Right, okay. So the, the, the flawed system is Ethereum Classic. Is, well, it, is it is in that was the, the, that was the thing that was exploited it's ethereum classic wasn't exploited it was one smart smart contract that was running on ethereum at the time right. was exploited right. so there was nothing fundamentally wrong with ethereum yeah um it was just a, a very 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 subtle error in one of the in, in this one smart contract um when you say people yes are these the the founders or are these the or are these just people on the network? Like, how how does a group consensus like that get made? I mean, it was really interesting, actually, of all sorts of different ways. Um, the practical uh, the practical matter is decided by the miners who put their mining power towards uh, one chain or the other. Um, but lot but. The, the community kind of made its voice known in a bunch of different ways. Lots of people writing blog posts and throwing their hat into the ring or, for, or throwing their hat into the corner of or one of the other sort of um, schools of thought. Um, and there was also a sort of informal community poll on something called Carbon Vote, which enabled people to sort of um, stake their... Um, or, or sort of use the the amount of ether that they held to to sort of um, say which side they were they were falling on, and it was it was massively massively in favour of the hard fork. I think it was something like eighty five to fifteen percent or something like that. Right, and so during that period of time where you fell on this scale, where like what, what, I, what, I was, yeah, very much in favour of the hard fork. So. Does, is there very much difference? Is there, is there much difference at all between the two technologies now? Um, it, now that they've forked off? The, I think there will be an increasing difference in the technologies going forward. I don't know 
to what extent the um, Ethereum Classic keeps up with the development on um, Ethereum. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that they've made a commitment that they're never going to move to proof of stake, um, which is a new consensus system that will be um, implemented on Ethereum in due course. They want to remain on proof of work because they think it's. I think because they think it's more decentralized. So does that does that mean that the the overall value of Ethereum in terms of its coin offering has has been split? And how does that affect, because um, obviously there's only so many, isn't there, that are churned, how does that affect the overall outcome of the project? Uh, no, it doesn't mean that they're split. It means that they're, uh, effectively the number of coins is doubled because the number of the number of uh, Ether that exist on both chains would have been the same. Right. Um, it was just that if you were uh, interested in the uh, Ethereum Classic chain um, and you were in the DAO, then you didn't get your... You didn't get any of your ether back that you would have right. uh, done on the on the mainnet, but basically everybody who was um, wanting to stay with Ethereum also had some ether on um, Ethereum Classic, which most people sold off. This is getting deep now, but it's yeah. nice to know the history. <laughs> so let's go back before I move on to the second part. All right. How am I going to get rich? How are you going to get rich? What 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 um, altcoins am I buying after this interview? Well, I, I think that uh, I, I yeah, altcoins <laughs> is. Yeah, I don't know if that's what they're termed as nowadays. I think people kind of... Just scams. Yeah, are, are, well, some of them certainly are <laughs> scams, but there are a lot of really interesting legitimate projects as well. Yeah. So how are you going to get rich? I would say that it's by... Um, <laughs> the really boring answer is, is by understanding what it is that you're looking at and buying something that you really believe has got a fundamental value in the future. And you know, ultimately by... But thousands of people around the world put their money in the hands of investment, uh, like, brokers because yeah. they believe that they know what they're talking about more than they do. Right. I said this exact same question to you last time. Obviously, you spend your head in this world way more than 90% of people. And even if you just, like, it'd be interesting to know, just for speculation purposes and for everyone listening, that this don't put your money in this because it's... <laughs> Jack doesn't know what he's talking about and it's all going to go wrong. Right, it's just, <laughs> that's not true, but let's uh, pretend that that's the case. Yeah. What projects do you find interesting? What projects do I find interesting? That's a, that's a question I feel more comfortable about answering. <laughs> so I think that there's, um, let me see, what do I find interesting? I think 0x is a really interesting protocol. It's a protocol for decentralized exchange. At the moment, most of the exchanges that we have are centralized. That means that you're basically sending some money to some company and they're going to sit on your money and then they'll have a database that allows you to move values around and then take your money out or take your tokens out or whatever it may be. Zero X aims to provide a protocol that enables that to happen without there being an intermediary. So at the moment, it, it allows you to do what they call OTC trades, over-the-counter trades. Um, that basically means I can put an offering out of, say, I've got you know, 10 Ether to sell. And you can go, oh, that's funny, I want to buy 10 Ether. So you can go and pick up that trade or some, some um, uh, part of it. Um, and lots of people are starting to build on that protocol as well to provide more sophisticated uh, functionality um, that makes it more similar to what you would expect from one of these sort of um, very highly performant and, and um, sophisticated uh, exchanges. So that's that's an interesting one. I like that project. Another one's called Funfair. That's another London-based project that I really like. 
they are building um, a, a back end for for gaming for or for gambling, I should say. So all sort of casino games. Um, I'm not into that personally, but I, I can see it as being a, a really interesting proposition if you've got like this really low overhead sort of um, uh, back end, common back end to all all gambling. And then other people can build applications on top of it. So, you know, you don't need to have everybody recreating the same things over and over again because you've just got one that anybody can use. That seems that seems pretty interesting to me. Um, I mean, there are so many. It's a paradox <laughs> of choice I'm, I'm struggling with here. Um, another interesting one, which is um, pretty old school. In fact, they started at the same time as uh, as we did at Colony. Um is Augur, which is a prediction market. Um, so that basically allows you to uh, create a market on what you think the outcome of some future event would be. I mean, the the way we typically understand this is like in sports betting, you know, who's going to win between two boxes or something. Um, and people will will bet, will buy a position in either side, and then they can also trade those. And the, the idea is that um, you know the market is pretty good. The wisdom of the crowd is pretty good at making these kind of predictions, and you know it generally turns out to be right. Um, so I think that's that's uh, another very interesting platform and protocol because again, people are building stuff on top of that as well. So if I'm begging you for change on the street next year, <laughs> we know who to blame. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think any of these things are... are they, those are all projects that have been trading for quite a while. Another yeah. interesting one is Golem, actually, yeah. um, which is sort of distributed supercomputing platform. Yeah. I think their first use case is as a, as a distributed render farm, which I guess is something you've got a bit of experience with in your design work. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, so rather than sending it off to some render farm where they've got you know all their their systems there uh, instead people provide their sort of excess computing capacity um and you pay for it in these in these golem tokens um so yeah i think that's that's pretty interesting too for the second segment of the interview i wanted to move away from the money side of cryptocurrency and instead talk about the blockchain and what people are doing to utilize the technology So let's talk about your company a little bit. Okay. Uh, transitioning or trying to make a kind of clear transition from the financial bit. I know that, or I believe Colony also has uh, its its own kind of coin offering to some degree. That is, but you've been very, very subtle about it and not done anything or not made a big fanfare. I, yeah. I, I watched a video that kind of suggested that you, you will at some point have, have something. What's the, you know, when a lot of people are, doing crazy marketing to try and generate buzz and wealth around their product like why have you taken the approach you have well and uh, this is a somewhat contentious position but um one that i suspect will ultimately turn out to be correct is that i think that the vast majority of token issuances that are going on um are actually illegal um they are the uh, issuances of, of unregistered securities in most cases, uh, which is a, a, a regulated activity in, in most countries, certainly in the UK and most of Europe and perhaps all of Europe, and um, most definitely in the US. Um, and 
yet people are issuing these tokens for that th- have no utility because they are saying, well, give us, you know, the the very modest sum of $30 million and we'll go away and we'll build this this platform with this with these funds but we're going to give you your tokens now and these tokens are probably going to get listed on various exchanges and then of course they well not of course but they do often increase in value um so what is the purpose of that token the purpose is ostensibly whatever the people have designed it to do within their their platform or protocol but practically speaking, its only purpose is to be moved around by traders and to appreciate in value and to, you know, it does have some legitimate, interesting use potentially, which is around building a community, building network effects, get, getting you sort of um, an army of evangelists that are hyped for when your project is actually going to be delivered. But unfortunately, that comes at the cost of it being a sort of in, in an extremely tenuous uh, legal position. The um, SEC, I mean, in, in general, in this uh, sort of blockchain space, we tend to always look at what the US regulators are doing and talk about them almost as a proxy for for everyone else. Um, so so I'll often refer to US regulators or US law or what, what have you, but I kind of just mean that as an example rather than trying to list what everybody's doing. Um, so the SEC um, have not um, had a, a sort of clear position on a lot of these things, other than to say that in 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 their view, in, in many cases they are securities, and in a couple of cases they've actually uh, had cease and desists. Um, so in essence, um, you're waiting for the dust to settle and see the way it all kind of pans out. No, we're not waiting for the dust to settle. We're very confident that the token that that colony has will not be regarded as a security but it most definitely would be well we think that it would be regarded as a security if we were to issue it before it was actually usable on a live functional platform yeah uh, and cr- crucially a fully decentralized platform um because really the important distinction within all of this um, that w- would make a token either a security or not a, dis- a security, and why it would be a security in the event of it being pre-functional is that there can be no reliance on the managerial or entrepreneurial expertise and efforts of the promoter or some other third party. You just blew my mind. I, no, I did not get what you just said. Sorry. <laughs> have, have I gone too deep? Well, I... Li- I, I <laughs> A little bit, I, it, but I get what you're saying. Basically, so into, if I sell you a token, yeah, a bit, and, and, and I, you, I you, are, you, you are totally reliant on on me or my company and the efforts that I'm going to put in for that token to have any value, yeah, then you know I have got a, a, a large burden and and I need some oversight to make sure that that I'm actually going to do that for your protection, yeah. And so that's what these securities laws are all about: is to provide essentially investor protection or, or or consumer protection that you're going to actually get what you paid for and it's not and it won't be um or, or that you were sophisticated in making that in, in taking that risk um so basically, to make that so basically am i right in saying that you're looking to get the platform into a place where it, it in, in instant 
uh, instantly it holds value just purely because the platform functions and there's value to be gained through using it. Yep. And, and therefore, there's less reliance on you per se and it makes it a little bit more legitimized. Yeah. So so in when we announced our uh, token sale, it was slightly tongue-in-cheek because we were announcing that we weren't doing one, we inadvertently sort of coined this thing that um, we started to call the, the Necker Island test, which is um, if after you've raised your $30 million um, or, or whatever it may be, $100 million in some cases uh, from from the, the token purchasers, <laughs> and then you take your you know, you know your team of seven people uh, that, that needed this $100 million off for your company all hands on Richard Branson's Necker Island, um, and then there's a you know, freak tsunami and all of your team gets wiped out, will your token still have a value? And in most cases, the answer is no, because there was no platform ever built. There was no, there was nothing that could use that token. However, if Colony goes to Necker Island after we've done our token sale, which just to be clear, we absolutely will not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, The token should still have value because people will still be able to use it on the platform. So let's talk about the platform then. Your, your, uh, the simpleton explanation of it is it's effectively like a, a, a task completion network, but it's decentralized. You're going to explain it way better. Sort of. Yeah. So, I mean, I would. What we say is that Colony is a platform for open organisations. Um, that's. Uh, the simplest way that we've managed to put it, but uh, another sort of perhaps equally simple way of doing it, uh, of saying it, is that um, it's a new way to start a company. But and the, that's all, is it is it based on remoteness, or, or or can it literally just be used as a as a if it's not remoteness and it is you're all in the same office? Why would mm-hmm. you use Colony over something else? Um, it, no, it's not necessarily based on on being remote, but it is. Uh, a, a big part of the way that we've thought about the design of it is that it's based on not requiring trust. And it's easier to trust people if you sit together with them and you know them. It's uh, practically impossible to trust people if all you know of them is that they are some um, Ethereum address or, uh, that exists on the network. You, you don't actually even know whether that's a person. It could just be so, what One of the things I found fascinating about your your material online is that you are really going into what what constitutes trust and um reputation yeah like that seems like a kind of big philosophical aspect of what it is you're trying to build hmm. am i right in saying that or yeah it could be i i've yeah i don't know if i usually think of these things as being uh f- philosophical but it's 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 more perhaps practical as in you know, when you're in an organization or a company, there has to be some acceptance that some people are better than others at at certain things. So, you know, you would have, uh, you would be a more senior designer, or graphic designer than I would. Perhaps I would be a more senior <laughs> 3D modeler or, or jewelry designer, because that was my, my former profession than you would. And so you would expect us to have a different, um, weight in decisions pertaining to those skills. Yeah. If you're in a centralized environment, if you're in a traditional hierarchical company, that's 
you know, that usually comes about because other people within the organization who are sort of more senior than you in some sense decide to modulate the influence that you have over decisions based on the expertise that you've demonstrated or, you know, perhaps some other factors. Um, but it's really hard to do that if you actually don't know that any of the people contributing to an organization are people or whether they're one person pretending or pretending to be several people or, um, you know, sort of many other factors. So you need a sort of um, quantitative way to be able to um, to, to um, attribute to, uh, to, exactly to attribute that to to activities and have those activities assigned to the I, entity I, that purports to have done them. I remember asking you this this question last time. It's very easy sometimes with say. Uh, I used this exact same example last time. Say you needed a logo doing. You mm. say, oh, we need a logo. Someone produces a logo. Right, that's contributed to that. A lot of company building and it, it entails thinking and mm-hmm. rumination on certain problems or whatever, and it's really hard to quantify the value of that. Yep. Um, and that's why I was saying it's more kind of philosophical because in order for this to be properly decentralized and to attribute value to tasks you have to go into the real intricacies as to what constitutes a job and uh what value they uh, and is who who determines the value is it on a project by project basis right so uh, well there's there's two things there so so one is i think there's a common misconception that the the, the idea around this is that you've just got a whole shitload of tasks yeah um that need to be done and you're going to be able to run a company or non-profit i'll just say company but i do just mean generally an organization of some sort um that uh, on that basis and i don't think that's i don't think that's true at all i think that's completely impractical and it would absolutely never work because every task is not something that you can farm out to an agency or you know every task is not can you design me this logo please yeah um but Within Colony, we we have sort of this notion of the task as being the simplest unit of work, but really that is a very flexible concept, and it can mean anything. It can it really means just whatever people agree that it means, and it could be designing a logo, but it could equally be somebody's monthly salary. Um, you know, somebody who who's role is you know very varied and is not easily um, composed of individual tasks. Um, what was the other side of the question? <laughs> I can't even remember myself. Okay. <laughs> um, it feels like, for, again, from digging into my research and actually clicking through some of the links that you sent me, mm-hmm. it seems like a lot of these startups are also building their technology off of other, uh, this might not be the right word, but other proprietary systems or things which they're building on top of other people's uh, ideas, mm-hmm. not just in, in concept, but actually using their tools to... Yep. to an, allow things to materialize mm-hmm. i does that make it quite vulnerable some of these startups but also is there a thing where because you're early on in this process and a lot of these things become very iterative i would like to use the word kaizen just incremental progress mm-hmm. but as soon as say let's say you build your platform and you use some technology and it becomes fundamental to the running of your your thing mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it's surpassed which is uh, let's take this to the reference of the internet whereby the websites from the early 90s versus 
the more sophisticated ones of today. Do some of these companies get left behind, do you feel, like in terms of by building tools too early? Will there come a time when there's almost like a golden age when people can kind of come and sweep in the market when once everything's materialised and catch up? I mean, quite possibly. Um, you know, we it could be that there's um, a bunch of things which are the the, the MySpace of their of their vertical, yeah, um, and something which learns from all those mistakes will come along. is is quite possible. Um, how do you combat that? I guess is what I'm, what I'm ultimately trying to get to. Like, how do you stop yourself from being surpassed? I mean, I think that that's probably not a technological issue. Right. Actually, I think that's probably it's you know products are complex things, and um, I think once there's a certain uh, a certain amount of waters passed under the bridge, it's quite difficult to to pivot and. and and you know, the more people are involved in decisions, everything gets slower and slower. So I think there's there's lots of different factors that that are at play when companies or software are, are sort of um, going past their sell by date, uh, if you like. Um, but I don't think that that is anything which is particularly problematic in the blockchain space. In, in any, I, I think that what you were alluding to was that a lot of um, projects are sort of in, in the sort of blockchain space or decentralized space are using one another's software in order to be well, able to build other projects, I, I, and I'm, and that's because the vast majority of this software is open source. Right. Um, so it's it's explicitly been written to encourage other people to make use of it. And I think that the, the, the thinking behind a lot of that is that it's really not the IP that's the value. It's the network effect that you get from adoption of that IP. And so what you want to do is to try and maximize engagement with it because it's, yeah, the, the more engagement you get around those networks, the more value sort of is attracted to them. It reminds me of a kind of a business philosophy which... Uh, with regards to flooding the market with product at, mm. at low rate costs, mm -hmm. where you don't make much margin, but you you make your product synonymous, and in doing so, you can reduce costs through sheer volume, right? And then ultimately, people become dis dissensitive to price, mm -hmm. and you can kind of make your margin in the long term. Yeah, I mean that's what they kind of say Uber's playing out, right? And they start off by being super super cheap, yeah, and then become ubiquitous, and then can move the price up and people don't notice it so much. But I don't really think that's what's going on with, with crypto uh, projects because, you know, the ultimate idea of, of all of this, this is this is a quite a hard concept to, to get your head around, but is that you can have a... is that a lot of these things are being made by companies or being made by... Um, often non-profits, and a lot of these things do have a profit motive involved, but a lot of them don't require a company. And so in many cases, the idea is that there is a project which will build a piece of software. And then what I was saying before, you know, this, this idea of there being an, a Necker Island test that if we get if we get wiped out in some freak accident, colony will continue to exist, is that ultimately colony won't require us as a company to exist and we don't expect to exist we will cease to exist in the future because it will be a self 
perpetuating application, which will be able to moderate uh, will, the users of which will be able to make improvements as as they need to, will be able to govern it as they need to, um, and even if it's perfect, let's say it's it doesn't need any more modification, people will just continue to be able to use it indefinitely. It doesn't require servers. As long as people are running a blockchain um, and people want to use it, they will be able to. You, I know from having, again, just done some, uh, do, do some digging, done some, or oh, having done <laughs> some digging, is that, mm-hmm. I think that's right, yep. um, around your company and the people that work there. You've got some pretty smart minds on this thing. We do. And I was just wondering if you could maybe talk about your team and some of the people that are kind of essential to making this thing a reality. I mean, they're all essential. Let me just get that very clear in case, because they will be listening to me, listening to this, I'm sure. So, um, I mean, <laughs> the whole team are absolutely awesome. Uh, um yeah, I'm very, very privileged to be able to work with with, with all of them. Um, I, I guess the the yeah, I, I'm wary of, of, it's, it's of like, shouting out to <laughs> any individuals. It's like the nerd Power Rangers. You're all yeah. like, you've all got your own superpowers. <laughs> exactly, it's a, a varied bunch of people, and uh, yeah, we all have different uh, different things that we bring to the table for sure. Okay, so this is just something that keeps getting brought up, and I thought you might be able to shed some light on it. People talk about speed and security as two of the big issues with regards to Ethereum in particular. Yep. Um, what? How does speed even play a factor, and how does this get resolved? Okay. So yeah, that is a problem. Um, security is. I think I, I, I'm not aware of there being any um, fundamental security issues with Ethereum at the moment. I mean, who knows? There could be, but. Um, that there's nothing that's currently problematic, but there is a problem with scale and speed. Um, I don't think anybody really expected there to be this overwhelming influx of projects building on Ethereum so quickly, and it is not capable of of um, meeting the requirements that are going to be put on put on it in very short order at the moment. So, so what does that require? More miners. No, it requires a move to a move away from proof of work, which is this network of computer uh, of miners doing this computational effort to um, to secure the network, and a move to proof of stake. Um, which means so so in proof of stake, it's a much simpler process. Well, <laughs> it's not a simpler process; it's very complex. Um, and I don't pretend to to understand what uh, how Casper, um, which is Ethereum's proof of stake um, um, uh, system, works. Um, but the 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 general idea is that by people staking their ether for long periods of time, they are then able to validate transactions that that come through the network, and uh, if they are malfeasance in any way they get their stake slashed and they get to, they lose some of their some of their stake or potentially all of their stake um so that's kind of the idea it keeps everybody honest by 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 having something to lose if they're, yeah, if by they're being naughty. in fear that they're uh, <laughs> sorry by being in fear exactly yeah. but but practically you know it'll be a piece of software that you 
stake your ether in smart contract and uh, and and away it goes but the idea of that is that it will mean that um transaction speeds will come down by quite a bit uh, down to a few seconds from i think it's currently about 15 seconds per block um and uh, there'll be a lot more capacity on the network at the same time there's um there's the sharding which is something we need to get to which is where at the moment we've got just one ethereum blockchain um but in the future there will be potentially tens of thousands of ethereum blockchains all of which can speak to one another and all of which are running on this casper proof of stake um consensus algorithm um and when that's the case there'll be vastly more capacity than there currently is and hopefully vastly higher speeds um when that's true then hopefully the cost of running the transactions running applications on ethereum will will come right down um to the point that i mean i think everybody's hoping that you'll be able to run an application on ethereum and the cost will be so negligible it's not really something you think about you're going to need to have some ether like some credit on an account because you you spend that every time you you run something but the cost should be very very minuscule why this is a problem now is that we've got a whole bunch of projects that are approaching being ready for mainnet with ether being <laughs> around a thousand dollars today um the the cost of running these applications is absolutely exorbitant and for complex applications like colony um you know it's it's no secret that those are are just going to be um unacceptably high and and people will not be willing to pay those costs to use these applications because they you know they're used to seeing these kind of things for free or for a fairly modest fixed monthly cost yeah um so so that needs to be overcome and i think that's the biggest challenge that we're facing that's fascinating i did not know any of that and that's really shone shed a light on it for me so thank you um so another one of the companies you actually run is ownage which is a games content uh, in order well you'll be able to explain this way better than me but the exchange of digital content mm-hmm. um how's that gone since you launched it uh, again we haven't launched it we've been uh working very diligently on the technology and that's actually um uh, a slightly different technological picture that we that we find ourselves with there because um yeah gaming is is quite a different beast than than sort of um companies uh, or, or organizational structures um so so ownage is about being able to create game assets this is like a my my co-founder will kill me for simplifying it to this extent but it it's basically about creating game assets um which you really truly own so you know your your flaming magical sword um in in your mmorpg um is something which which um really belongs to you and you can sell it at the moment you don't really own your items in games you know you you supposedly do but you you have no real control over that if I've acquired um, this magical sword, I can then sell it to you and you could sell it on to somebody else and that person could be perhaps like a, a famous player of some description that he could win, you know, a big tournament with it. And um, have, have you read Ready Player One? I'm actually reading Ready Player One at the moment. Oh, it's so good. I, <laughs> yeah. really, I really enjoyed it. But I think that it's such a, obviously because it's being brought out as a film. Yeah. It'll be... a. F- a fascinating thing to try and latch uh, ownage onto, if you know what I mean, because right. the, the, the the very real concept of owning weaponry is is very prevalent in that yeah. in that book. Um, 
But one thing just out of interest, like how do you, I'm in Final Fantasy and I've acquired an amazing weapon yep. and then I'm on World of Warcraft or Diablo or whatever uh, RPG game you mm-hmm. might be playing. How do you extract something from that game and help and hold it on this platform, if you know what I mean? Because like, aren't they all very different? Yeah, absolutely. And it won't be possible for people to just um, sort of say, well, I can use this sword from World of Warcraft on, on Diablo, um, unless those things were, were explicitly sort of acknowledging assets that they found in different games. It could be that they would, um, you know, perhaps I've got a, a new game. I know you're a sort of, uh, a big player of World of Warcraft or something, and I can see that you've got this uh, variety of assets, so I want to be able to gift you a bunch of assets uh, in my game. Or I might be able to say, well, you've got, um, you know, this particular ship in EVE Online or something, and uh, and therefore uh, anybody who's got that ship will also be able to get a similar ship in my game. Um so it would work more like that. It wouldn't be sort of that they're transferable it, between games. It's more that if game developers wanted to be able to support the same assets in, in multiple games, perhaps they, they own or perhaps as part of a consortium, they could do. Um, and that you can you can trade it so you can, you know, sell it on a, on a marketplace kind of thing. Yeah, and so... Um, again, like, sorry if uh, if I've missed the point, like how... So let's say I'm playing Diablo and I yep. get a big, I get a sword and I want to pass it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. At the moment, you, you you walk around, you you maybe make an exchange player to player, or you drop a weapon or whatever, and yep. someone picks it up, or you maybe sell your account on eBay. Yeah. How 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 do you foresee that exchange happening via your platform? Right. All of which is very risky as well. People yeah. People get defrauded all the time doing that. Um. So what will most likely happening, this comes down to the the way the user experience ends up being resolved, is that you've got your inventory, uh, you'll be able to call up a console in the middle of the game, you've got your inventory in there, you'll be able to click for sale, and it'll go onto Marketplace and people will be able to discover it, and they'll be able to buy it, and the whole transaction will be atomic. That means that I, so I make the money available, and at the same time, I get the, 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 um, the, the sword, you get the money and there's no county putty risk. Ah, so, yeah, there no, we go. No possibility for fraud. It's very good indeed. And, for, you know, for people that aren't into games, it's quite hard to realise just how big of a, of a world it is out there. If, you know yeah, what I mean? It's, it's massive. That's huge, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the anyone's guess spirit of the cryptocurrency world, I wanted to throw some quick-fire questions at Jack to see if he could shine a light on what the future may hold, as well as answer many of my dumb questions regarding the technology. So finally, before we jump into just the last few questions, I just wanted to throw some kind of real dumb stuff at you. Okay. Um, some of it's quite speculative, but just if you have any idea, a quick answer would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. So in your opinion, what does Ethereum look like in five to ten years? Like, What's the, what's the difference between <laughs> now and then? Uh, you've already mentioned that hopefully the speed increase is going to happen. Yeah. So will that result in more companies? And yeah, I mean, m- it's, more actual accessible tools that we can use using the t- technology. I think so. I think that there'll be. Yeah, I think that there'll be a, a, a very wide variety of different kinds of applications that are being built uh, on, on Ethereum. 
and other uh, decentralized application protocols. Um, I don't know exactly what those all look like. It could be that the the the, the technology ends up being used for a very for very specific classes of applications. Um, depending on what happens with the cost of of doing these things, it could be that very large applications are not really suitable uh, for being built in this way, and there'll have to be different things for that. But I think it will definitely still be there, and other technology, similar technologies, will be there, and it will just continue to proliferate. Talking about proliferation, um, this you may see this as a, a bit of a silly question, but what in your mind does adoption look like? Does it become one of these things that is invisible to people that that use it? If you know what I mean, or, or in the idealistic viewpoint of what this this technology becomes, mm. what what does that look like? I think eventually it needs to be invisible. Um, I think that. There is an increasing focus on user experience. Um, up to now, the, the user experience has not been great, um, but I think everybody working in this space realizes that if we want to get people using the software that we're building, we have to give them an experience which is analogous to what they currently experience. Um, you know, decentralization should be a benefit and not a cost. I think the biggest mental hurdle that people are going to have to come to to overcome uh, I don't think there are any particularly easy answers to this is this idea of of paying for what you do online because somebody's always paying for it and actually you're always paying for it one way or the other whether it be in your data or 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 in money but you know usually when you're using a free free service of some description you're paying in your data you're being advertised to uh, and you know, if people don't want that to be the case and they want to be able to use other things, they're going to need to understand that there's, they, they need to have a balance of, of Ether or whatever the, the fuel is on some other decentralized um, application platforms um, that they pay for their activity with. And so, so that's, I think, um, one significant hurdle to, um, to mass adoption. But I kind of feel like that hurdle is overcomable because people seem to really want to hold these tokens even without knowing what they can be used for so perhaps by the time they can actually be used for something holding them will be even more attractive well i think there's a weird counterintuitiveness to it which is at the moment people see it as a way to make money and then you're not going to want to spend it because you assume it's going to be worth more later down the line well yeah, and this is really the fundamental problem we go back to what we were talking about earlier on about securities yeah. laws i mean the whole point of any of these tokens should be that you're selling it because people think that this token or, or because this token is a necessary functional component of a decentralized application um and they cannot use your application without holding this uh, this token, or, or, or they cannot do some specific function they want to be able to do within it without this token, um, rather than it just being f- for speculation. Because having like uh, unregulated, purely speculative things, which um, uh, where there is a high degree of risk riding on, you know, some entrepreneurial team messing it up, is I think problematic i think it would be um it'll be much better when we get to a point of a greater stability where there are more 
um, properly decentralized applications that are using these tokens. And, you know, you really can view those tokens as, as having, uh, as being uti- for the utility and, and not being speculative at that point. So does stability come once all the, all the tokens are in existence? Is that, is that the premise? Price stability? Yeah. No, no. I don't think so. Um, and, and just on that, do you think, obviously we've got Bitcoin, you mentioned that that was the yep. store of value currently. Mm-hmm. In our lifetime, do you foresee a cryptocurrency surpassing money? Yeah, yeah. for sure. I don't see why it wouldn't. Um, I, I don't know whether it will as a... Well, I mean, it won't surpass money, it will be money. What I mean is, is <laughs> will, will we be will using... It pass, will it surpass fiat? Will it gain greater adoption than fiat currencies? Yeah. Like, like the dollar. Um I think it will gain widespread adoption. I don't know whether it will surpass the dollar um, or, or other fiat currencies. Perhaps that will take quite a long time. But, you know, once you've started using, once, you, once you're kind of through the quite frictional early onboarding of, of um, getting involved with digital currencies, using them is so much easier than, you know, even just using your online banking Um that it's going to be, it'll be very attractive to people because you you know you can send arbitrarily large amounts of of money for practically nothing, very very rapidly, and you don't have to you know fill in a load of forms at the bank. You know, <laughs> um, it's it's all, all in all an easier user experience. I mean, there there are certainly um, some downsides as well. Um, notably around um, risk and, and security. You know, at the moment, if you lose your lose your ether, for example, if you've got a hardware wallet, you lose your ether, perhaps, or you forget your 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 password to your, to your wallet, you're kind of screwed. There's nobody that can help you. <laughs> Whereas uh, that can't really happen with your bank. Um, there's lots of places to find out information with regards to this whole industry. Mm. Uh, I just wondered if you wouldn't mind sharing kind of where you go because obviously you'll be you'll know the best sources of information as far as you're concerned. I think that uh, well, I don't know any new ones. I suppose the the places that I usually go to are Reddit. There's basically a subreddit for everything that you can imagine, and that certainly applies to every single cryptocurrency. Yeah, it's funny like. Uh, <laughs> I, I suspect this episode will be popular purely because of your Reddit. <laughs> it was last time. You, I mean, Reddit is such a powerful place, and it yeah. seems to be the 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 place where people that really want to understand stuff go to hang out. You know, right? Yeah, and the the uh, r slash Ethereum is a is good um, place for discussions about projects and technology and price talk and trading talk is is um, not really allowed there. Um, there is another one called F Trader, uh, R slash F Trader, which um, is you know it's just all about trading talk and price talk and memes, um, <laughs> which is you know has its place as well. It's pretty funny. Awesome. Uh, last question uh, before I get into the final, 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 final questions. So the last time you spoke, you mentioned uh, Vitalik Buterin, if that's, oh, yeah. if that's how I say mm-hmm. it correctly. Uh, as a kind of leader in the space, and mm-hmm. I went and watched a couple of his videos, and the okay. guy, he, I mean, he looks like the person that should be leading it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's like a mad scientist kid. Anyway, I was just wondering if in the last year or so, if any other interesting people have emerged that you would say tune into. 
I know that there was the the whole Ethereum gang. Yeah. But is there anyone else? This is not a good question for me. I think there's. Uh, I, I I don't really pay attention. <laughs> That's fair enough. Completely cool. Um, so. I'm going to ask if I can share with people where they can get hold of you and also ask you one final question. Sure. But before I do, to sum up some of the great takeaways from today's episode, I'm going to pass the show over to our producer, Adam, to share some insights from today's episode. Thanks for joining us today, Jack, and thank you for the wealth of insight you've shared with us. Here's the five actionable insights I wrote down as you were talking. Number one. Issuing a token on a blockchain is being seen by some as an easier way to raise money than from venture capitalists. Number two, what makes cryptocurrency so good is its mobility. It's far more liquid than gold. Number three, although no one knows which currency will win out, Ethereum is still the most interesting. Number four, if you want to get rich with cryptocurrency, do it by understanding what you're looking into and believing it has a future. And number five, If you want to understand a cryptocurrency, then the best place to go is its subreddit. And now for one final one. If you're buying, then don't buy when it's going up like a hockey stick. Prices can drop dramatically. Thank you, Adam, for those great insights. Look forward. I'm sure everyone's going to uh, enjoy those. It's been a complicated episode, so I'm sure he's had... (laughs) It was tough, that one. But um, So, last questions... Uh, where can people get hold of you and do you have any asks for the audience? Any asks? Wait, Maybe what? they should check out Ownage and Colony. Ah, okay. Okay. They can get hold of me at uh, on Twitter or, or rather Colony on Twitter at, at Join Colony. Uh, they can hit us up over email at hello at colony.io or um, hello at ownage.io if you want to talk about Ownage too. Um, we'd certainly encourage you at colony to uh, to have a look at our blog that's really where the majority of the stuff that our outreach goes um and we periodically write about things that we uh, think are interesting and some people seem to agree um if you are interested in testing out the uh, testing out colonies beta um that's also uh, open uh, as a private beta so if you've got a project that um, you're interested in in trying to um, work in a collaborative way with some other people and, and incentivizing them to do so. Uh, we have a sort of feature-limited beta that people can try out. And, uh, yeah, hit us up at Hello at Colony again for that. Um, and uh, other than that, if you're going <laughs> to buy, buy crypto, like, just research it first yeah (laughs) research it heavily and and, and don't buy when the price is going up in a hockey stick that's the worst time to do it that would be my one piece of advice ah that's a good good well maybe this is that's the final question so the last 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 question is if you could give the world one piece of advice to live a better and more meaningful life what would it be don't buy in a hockey stick (laughs) wow what a big question to lead a better and more meaningful life yeah I like to throw a uh, a deep one in at the end. Should have prepared you for this. I apologise. Uh, I mean, it's a bit of gentle preparation. I think at the last time, the last time we spoke about this, I said something fatuous, like, um, you know, <laughs> do what you want to do rather than what other people expect of you, or something like that. But what's the what's the uh, do you know, recalling, because I don't think people will listen to the first episode and I'll, this will just hopefully give you some breathing time to think, but 
you mentioned a really interesting point last time, which was all around um, that you, with your jewellery design, you were creating things for a very small few, mm. and that ultimately it it didn't feel like the way to spend your life was to appeal to ultra wealthy people that already had enough. And it's interesting to have seen in the last year and a bit that you've really stuck to your principle there that you're trying to create something that appeals to a wide number of people and that will live on long past the day you 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 pass. Mm. Um so yeah, I think there's a powerful message in that. And um yeah, congratulations for actually seeing through with your your <laughs> ideas. Cheers. Um so hit me with a question again, what was it? <laughs> if you could give the world one piece of advice to live a better and more meaningful life, what would it be? Okay, a better and more meaningful life. I think... So the other day I was... Um, I was probably just, like, going to sleep or something and, and I was sc- scrolling through, through you know, Reddit's front page and there was this question that somebody had asked of people out there who fucking hate their jobs how do you do it and you know i was just reading answer after answer from people and i should just warn you i don't really know where i'm going with this but i'm gonna continue with it <laughs> <laughs> answer after answer from people who are like well you know i I've, i'm i'm 20 years into this job and um you know i i pretty much hate it and and i, I don't feel like i'm really respected here and but if i if i move i'm gonna like lose 80 percent of my pension and all all these different you know horrible things or, or that they that they wouldn't want to have happen to them and that just made me incredibly sad to think that there is so many people out there who are just fucking grinding through their life. I mean, you get one crack at this, and and people are just going, well, yeah, I mean, I've only got to stomach it for another 20 years, and then I can retire. And that is just no way to exist, in my view. I think the So w- rejecting that. Yeah, <laughs> the word retire in general, it's almost, you know, it's... it's people aspiring for the finish line i like the fact that i'd love to die doing what i enjoy doing yeah you know whatever that and it might people may see it as work but hopefully it would be the thing you'd enjoy doing right so i think the 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 way to get to a a a point of living a more meaningful and, and perhaps enjoyable life is to find the thing that for you enables you to to live and also ceases to feel like you're working. I don't feel like Monday morning comes around and I'm going to work. It just feels like it's Monday and it's a continuation of life, which is something that I've tried to set up to my liking. Um, and, yeah, that try to set your life up to your liking. Is that helpful? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really fitting way to end. I, and I'll make a poster of that. I like yeah. it. <laughs> Cheers, Jack, for coming on. It's been, it's a been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. 
You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>